Hello and welcome to the TV Movie Rewind Podcast with Matt and Todd. Hello, and um, I just want to start off, because this is important to me. Um, I have several issues with this movie, and one of the most important ones, and this is an important disclaimer, is that the views of this movie, specifically with regards to American consumer products, American consumer products, do not reflect the views of uh, definitely me and I believe Matt as well. Um, we are entirely open to any and all product endorsements whatsoever and however they may be. So uh, yes. I want to say that. Any type of chemical companies, we don't care if it does prove hazardous to your size. Do not care. And with that said, today's movie is The Incredible Shrinking Woman, starring Lily Tomlin, Charles Grodin, Ned Beatty, and directed by Joel Schumacher. A Joel Schumacher film. Wow. And this totally fits because you, like many Joe Mark- Schumacher films, say what you will about whatever they are. I like a lot of them. Uh, you will. I, I like when it. All right. A spoiler alert. When it comes to recommendations, I don't have one. I really can't think of another movie quite like this. I really can't. No, this is. I mean, well, this is the incredible shrinking woman. And I don't think I can re- recommend the mundane shrinking woman. That right. movie is just, you know. Right. Just, just didn't feel it, but right. The uncanny this, shrinking woman, though, that's that's pretty good. The astonishing shrinking woman. Yeah, but that was just—I mean—they just went crazy after that. So one of the reasons we we decided we wanted to do this is because recently, just a few weeks back, Charles Grodin passed away, mm-hmm. and we wanted to kind of do a tribute to him. And then just last week, Ned Beatty unfortunately passed away as well. And since they're both part of this movie, and this is another movie we saw dozens upon dozens of times growing up on HBO. Right. But then it went to, like, sleep since. I mean, I haven't even thought about this movie for a very long time until we started to do this podcast. Well, I'll admit, maybe I don't quite think of the movie very often, but um, the Galaxy Glue jingle will sometimes just pop up in the back of my head and 100 percent. every time i have crazy glue or similar yeah torture me for days and days and days yep so basically this movie is a family oriented comedy starring lily tomlin as a rather harried housewife um again this was 1981 so we're still kind of at the uh we're coming towards the end of the era with of the stay-at-home mom Raises the children, does all the shopping. Foreshadowing. Um, yes. And the, oh my God, well, we'll get into it, but yep. her husband works for a chemical company, mostly in the marketing division, and they test a lot of the products, and, you know, she's exposed to numerous combination of chemicals. Right. All different types of household things between deodorant perfumes, detergents, glues, cereals, gums. She begins to shrink. And, uh, well, comedy and hijinks and so. Yes, she, I mean, at first, and it's incredibly so, in fact. It's done at first subtly, where she kind of notices her clothes aren't fitting quite right, and, you know, like maybe she's losing weight. But the it's really well done where they finally hit upon that she's shrinking because Charles Grodin, who plays her husband, is leaving for work, and they go to kiss goodbye, and he kisses her on the nose, right? Because she's shorter than she was, right? So they 
discover, like we said, the, the scientists and, and doctors discover that a combination of all these chemicals she's exposed to over her life, as well as um, an, uh, an anemia that she suffers from, is combined to cause her to shrink. And we get comedy of a woman who is shrinking with some fantastic, just really well done forced perspective. Mm-hmm. Rear screen projection, uh, oversized prop special effects that show this poor woman getting smaller and smaller. Right. To the point where she's living in a dollhouse with her in her own house. Uh, she's They have to get rid of the dog because the dog is chasing her. Right. But the biggest thing they have to worry about is this conglomerate of evil scientists who want to steal her blood so they can create a shrinking formula to shrink all mankind. And make us easier to rule. Yep. yep. So Pretty much. she ends up kidnapped after a horrifying sequence where she falls in the garbage disposal. Chilling and this day. Yeah, that is, it's really kind of freaky. She really falls is. in this garbage disposal after the husband and kids are left for work and the, the housekeeper has been distracted. And while she manages to escape and is kidnapped by the evil conglomerate. Uh, the poor housekeeper thinks she has accidentally sent her down the disposal, garbage disposal, killing her. And in one of the possible worst puns that any newscaster could have made, you know, after it's revealed to the world that, well, they think she's dead, but it's revealed right. to the world that the beloved incredible shrinking woman is dead. All hopes for her have gone down the drain. Right. And I'm like, dude, right. not cool. This woman no. had children. Right. Right. Children, and was theoretically like minced in a garbage disposal. Children who needed to be beaten into a coma because these kids are pain. I mean, that's a bit strong, but they definitely are challenging. <laughs> and they both have the, she's got a boy and a girl and they both have the same haircut. They have the same 70s bowl, like Joey Lawrence haircut. Yep. So anyway, she's killed Matt by the conglomerate, and that's where we get also to meet two of the best characters in this movie. Sure. Sydney and Rob, who is the lab assistant. Rob is the lab assistant, and Sydney is a super intelligent ape, played by Rick Baker. Now, here's who... the problem. Here's the second problem that I have with this movie is because in the true story, that was a tamarind. So that here is where the movie just deviates from the actual like events. You know, and that just, I don't know. I mean, it, to me, it's just like, why do that? It, that, uh, poetic license. Fair enough. All right. So I want to talk about, again, Rick Baker is in this monkey suit that he designed himself. And this is the second time that I can think of that he was in a monkey suit playing an ape. The first time was, of course, in the 1978 remake of King Kong. Oh, right. And this, I, when we saw this movie as a kid, I thought this was an actual gorilla. Sure. Now, looking at it today, I mean, the effect still really holds up, but you can tell it's not an actual Yeah, I mean, gorilla. like a big screen, high def, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah. I, it just... But it to like a... eight-year-old eyes on a tiny TV in a you know poorly lit kitchen. Well, not poorly lit, but like a bright kitchen or whatever. Sure, it's like a gorilla, absolutely. Rick Baker, by the way, would be the first person to win um, 
All right, it's a technicality, but he's the first one to win an award for makeup effects, an Academy Award for makeup effects. Oh, okay. Uh, technically, he's the third. He's the first because the Academy only added it as a regular award in 1980, mm-hmm. and he won for his work on American Werewolf in London. Sure. Technically, he's the third because um, in 1968 for Planet of the Apes, the Academy gave out a special achievement for makeup effects. And they'd also done that for, um, um, I want to say, The Castle of Dr. Lau. I forget the other movie, but two movies prior, Ruby Sun won special achievement Oscars. So, Whereas Rick Baker won the first official Oscar when the category was finally added. So so does it, it seems to me then like the genesis of the award or the genesis of the um, acknowledgement for the award came from like, okay, these movies have come out with such outstanding effects like we have to say something even if we don't have an official way to say it yet. And the impetus for, to that was apparently the elephant man not getting any acknowledgement for the great effects done right. for that movie. Because it's, it's one of those things where it's like, wow, this is so visually stunning. You have to say something. Like, you have to recognize it. I get it. Okay. Yes. All right. So, uh, Sydney the ape and Rob the lab assistant help her escape from this lab that they're, she's being held in so the evil conglomerate can steal her blood. And I, I know it, it, it was it ended up still being my favorite part of the movie. But as a kid, it's like this, this slapstick keystone caper escape from the lab. Yes. As the trio are, you know, the incredible shrinking woman, she's now this time, she's down to probably about four inches in height. Right. She's, she's in like a know, rat cage. She was held in a rat cave, and she's holding on to Sydney's collar as Sydney's bounding around and it's knocking really down the guards. And Rob is doing kind of like, a, you know, that, that classic Anna Barbera escape as he runs through one door. They all chase him through that door, and then he runs out another door, and then they come, you know, they're in elevators, they escape. It's just, it's a, just, it's slapstick, but it's a lot of fun. He's, he's so good, Rob. He's so good in this in such a short role. He's, he's got such uh, a likable, such a quickly fun role, you know? And and he is, might as well get it out of the way. He's my Whit Bissell Award winner. Okay, right on. Um, For me, it's, it's maybe. It's um, Mark Blankfield. He was a comedian. He, he's been in other movies. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I looked him up. He'd been in a couple of things. But he just does a fantastic job. Um. For me, I mean, yeah, let's just do the whip bissell now. Why not? Uh, for me, it's Ned Beatty who plays the consummate. Um, I would say, I mean, you could say ambitious, uh, but yet understanding and righteous. And I could, like, I can get behind the decisions that he was making. You know, um, he, Ned you know, Beatty he kind of sells me. He, he, yeah, he plays the. Um, well, he plays Charles Grodin's boss. At the chemical company. At the chemical company, who is a or, client of the... Uh, you say evil, I say forward thinking, and sometimes that can seem the wrong way. Um, organization whose products, I'm sure, were quite great. And, uh, well, you know, we'll see. Well, again, all right, so Ned Beatty's the, is Charles Grodin's boss, and basically they're the marketing department for all these chemical companies. Mm-hmm. And the chemical companies themselves aren't the evil ones. It's these. It's a shadow corporation that includes people from the chemical company, 
from a science foundation and from a toy company as well. I mean, I don't want to not diversify shadow corporations or corporations. I'm just yes. saying. I mean, you know. So, yeah, and as you're saying, Ned Beatty is, you know, he's the one that's approached by the, the truly evil people to try to get well, Lily Tomlin. And he's like, uh, he's in it for the money, but he's also, he doesn't want anybody to get hurt. I mean, evil is such a, I mean, yeah, okay. Dude, they want to shrink the human race. Yeah, but think of how much more food there would be and how much more space and stuff and how much less impact we could have if all cars were like really tiny. See? But that's not what they're doing it for. They're doing it to you, subjugate us. I mean, you don't, I mean, you say they, subjugation. They, they outright say it. Well, I mean, you rooted against Nada and they lived, didn't you? You rooted against Nada and 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 and, and didn't want him to put on those glasses, didn't you? Well, not I mean, not necessarily. That's that's slightly different. Um, I'm just, but then again, you know, if they approach me with the right offer, I I can at least think about it. So, anyways, they escape the lab. She's able to reveal to they make it to this little um, market area in the center of town, and she gets control of a microphone and announces to the world that she's still alive. They've stolen the evidence against this corporation, so they can reveal their um, dastardly deeds. But mm. she ends up unfortunately shrinking down rapidly into nothing, only enough with enough time for Charles Grodin. And the children arrive for them to say goodbye. And it's really kind of... It's uh, it's emotional because it is. they they thought she was dead. They found out she's still alive. They rushed to go see her and basically see her vanish right in front of their, their eyes. Essentially microscopic. She goes into the, what is it, the quantum dimension or whatever it is that Scott goes into. The Ant-Man there. Uh, originally visited by the Incredible Shrinking Man. Which this is based off of, but we'll get to that too because I cannot not talk about sure. um, Richard Matheson. Sure. So she ends up, but she, as people, because she's so microscopic, she falls into yet another mix of chemicals. And as the they're all at home doing a candlelight vigil and mourning her her loss, she comes back to normal size. Everybody's happy, and Charles Gordon's trying to put the wedding ring back on her finger, but won't quite fit, and right. that's where we realize she's still growing. And then the movie ends there. Yep. And just to be clear about how that movie ends, and because she says it, you know, when she's like, oh, hey, how did you come back, or whatever, and she talks about, like, in, ingesting some of the um, products that were on the ground, the products that saved her. This is, you know, it's fun. Well, let's just, again. I, this I, I enjoyed watching. I have probably haven't seen this movie in a good, you know, nearly forty years. Agreed. Same. And I just loved seeing it again. I enjoyed it immensely. It was Absolutely. a lot of fun. Lily Tomlin's great. She's amazing. Rodin's great. Uh, Lily Tomlin actually has a dual role, and I don't think I realized that she also played the neighbor and friend, best friend of. The Incredible Shrinking Woman. When we were a kid, I don't think I picked up on that. Yeah, very possibly not. She's got a third cameo role as an operator, which I knew was her as a kid. But and 
And what's interesting about this movie is that so that second character that she plays, the neighbor there, is a character of hers from you know her sketch days, which she was started, I think, in, in Rowan and Martin's Laughing. Um, and that was one of her characters from her sketch days, along with the probably more recognizable um, one ringy dingy uh, uh, telephone operator whose name I can't remember what she used. Um, and then there was supposed to be a third in a deleted scene. It was supposed to be her third character from her sketch days, which was. Um, Oh, Mary Ann or something like that, which is like she's a little kid. The bratty little girl yeah. she often played. Yeah. Um and the th- and the thing is is like like that's I guess that's like it's this movie just kinda does that. Like the movie just kinda does things and doesn't really in in the most fun ways. Like the beginning of the movie is really fun with the cheese teas. Like just right yes. away, you know what they're referencing and it's like, oh man. You know? the, the movie opens with them with basically a guy trying to do one of those live on the street commercials of, yeah, try this new spray cheese and isn't it just so delicious, but he can't find anybody who to tries it like to it. say, yeah. yeah, nobody can actually say anything positive about it. Right. And what's surprising is, I'm not sure, I mean, overall, I don't think it's so much an anti-consumer products, but it's obviously trying to weigh raise awareness of like all this stuff is just well not right good for us and there's just such a especially by the the early 80s there was just an overabundance of chemicals and, and additives and preservatives and all other sorts of stuff right and, and that's that's one it, of the two undercurrents of the movie because uh, there's that scene in particular when we're talking about where both characters are on screen both lily tomlin as um as uh, uh, you know, as as the incredible shrinking lady, you know, basically down to the size of, I don't know, a Chucky doll, and um, her neighbor as they're going through the supermarket, and she's talking about all the stuff that, it, correctly so, because she's like, you know, maybe it was all this stuff that you can't even pronounce, and she's more or less accurate on that. What's surprising about that Superman supermarket scene is how much product placement it is in this movie. Oh yeah, about how bad these products can be. Oh yeah, yet there's Coca Cola saying we don't care. Look at Coke. Right? Yep. Look at all our delicious soda products. All right. the cereal. Like, oh, try this new uh, the Total and Post-Raisin brand. And, you know, hey, there's no such thing as bad publicity. And and for a fun uh, 80s reference, um, the manager of that supermarket is Mr. Whipple. Mr. Whipple of the Charmin commercials. Yep. Uh, the, the other thing about this movie is the colors. Yes. Beautiful. There movie. are so much bright pastel 80s colors everywhere from hot pinks to yep. pastel blues to neon greens i kind of want to get the remastered blu-ray for this it's it's very visually 80s and i don't know how much of that was just trying to represent the time of the 80s cuz i remember everything you know the 80s just being a very colorful sure period miami vice but, alone man well, Miami Vice was still a few years down the road, but yeah, he, um, Don Johnson's uh, uh, Crockett definitely turned hot pink into a man's color. Right. Well, everything was like sunny pastels, whether it be because whether it be because of like the West Coast thing, where like everything was like you want to be LA and LA gear and all that, or or Miami for that matter. When, when Miami Vice came out, it was all that, like right, bright sun drenched colors. As we said right from the start, you know. The opening of the movie is them trying to do a commercial. Yep. As she's driving home from the supermarket with all these bags in their, their car, every she person she passes on the neighborhood is shouting out, have you tried this new product? Right. Have you tried this new product? It's oh, very look surreal. At this great shine. It's, 
it's it's obviously again anti-commercialism without pointing a finger directly at anybody right without calling it directly evil it's more of a uh, satire well yeah again it's more of like you know we're we're polluting our planet which again was a 70s early 80s thing sure still is right and we're polluting our bodies we don't know what effect all these chemicals are going to have on us yep now granted <laughs> um <coughs> granted a lot of this is excuse me you know I'm trying to think you know we we do know we there there are, there have been some nasty effects that can build up over time but it, it, nobody's trying to point the blame they're just trying to have fun with it this that's right. the basis of this movie it's a lot of slapstick it's, comedy it's satire yeah um, you know, the scene where, you know, after she's had to move into the dollhouse and runs afoul of the bunny playing the drums toy and the <laughs> Betsy Wetsy doll and all the other ridiculous, you know. Every toy is doing a thing, yeah. Yes. Um, you know, because that was another late 70s, early, all these electronic toys right. that, you know. Right. Microelectronics had really just kicked off and become cheap enough to put in toys for novelty reasons, whether it be to simulate like the wedding of a baby doll or, yeah, uh, drumming like that rabbit or whatever. It's it's all of that. And the the, the, the robot toy and, mm-hmm. you know, this is I mean, the movie is essentially 80s. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, it's very I, much I don't a, know. It's it's a time capsule, but at the same time, like very forward thinking and still timely. But yeah, no, it's very much an '80s movie, an early '80s, late '70s movie. I mean, I recommend the movie, but I don't know if I would say this is an essential '80s movie. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if it's. I don't know if I necessarily agree with. I, I definitely recommend the movie. It's because there's nothing. There's nothing else quite like it, and Lily Tomlin is so strong throughout. Um, if you're a fan of her, certainly watch it. You probably would have by now. Um, it didn't do and well at the t- at its time, but I think it's come back around now uh, and been I, appreciated somewhat more. I mean, everybody. I mean, yes, Lily Tomlin. She has to. She's the, not only the central character, well, two central characters. Yeah, but, she carries it so well. She carries um, this movie so well. Charles Grodin does an excellent job. Yes, you know, as the harried, befuddled husband who. Yes doesn't quite know what to do himself. Um, Ned Beatty, as we mentioned, is great. And Rick Baker and and uh, Mark Blankfield steal the show when they show up for the final act of this movie. Yep. The kids are obnoxious, but, you know, I think that was, <laughs> you know, they had a part to play. We're supposed to find them obnoxious. Right. But again, right from the beginning, you know, when he brings home, he comes home from the from his travels, Charles Grodin, and he's got, he's, he's always bringing home stuff for them to, to, a new product for them to test and help market. Like the exploding gum he gives to the kids that <laughs> obviously it would seem to be a combination of pop rocks and bubble gum. Right. Because, you know, it just like fizzes foaming. out of their mouths and stains their faces for a good portion of the movie. Um, Galaxy Glue, which is a super glue that had a jingle that plays throughout the movie and then ends the movie and we'll just it's it's one of the airworms to end all airworms you hear galaxy glue you are screwed it is stuck like the glue itself it will stick with you forever 
Um, yeah, like to me, what's been stuck in my head is still from last week is how silly can you get? But um, Galaxy Glue is right there as well when I'm not thinking about it. So it's been yeah, it's it's been a troubling couple of <laughs> couple of days with both of them just stuck rolling in my head. Uh, uh, we mentioned the garbage disposal scene. Uh, another, like we said, the, the supermarket scene has everything between force perspective, rear projection, and um, oversized props for her to interact with. And that's a lot of like, whoever did the props for this movie did an excellent job, not only with the fake products and, um, you know, there's a bit where she's, you know, standing up on top of a soapbox yelling at her husband. And he's like, all right, well, let me know when you get down from your soapbox, you know, right. You know, a nice little pun, nice, nice little gag there. The, oversized Ken doll, the oversized doll furniture she interacts with. At one point, she's drinking out of a thimble. I mean, they really put mm-hmm. a lot of effort so much into detail. this movie. Detail to make it believable. Mm-hmm. And, and they do... I mean, again, when I was a kid, you didn't know what to look for. You just almost wondered, like, wow, did they somehow able to shrink her down? I don't know. <sighs> right. But, you know, now you know, okay, yes, she's not appearing in the same shots and, you know, they cut back and forth or, right, you know, the rear projection's a little harder to hide nowadays. It's just, it's still, for the most part, it still holds up very, very well. Oh, absolutely. Like, the effects are exceptional here. Um, the acting, again, Lily Tomlin is, what, almost 80% of this movie because she just carries a lot of the scenes just herself and she does such a great job. Um, she she carries them so well. Like it's it's just so charming. Um, Charles Grodin, like you said, plays the great kind of befuddled husband who's stuck between, you know, wanting to wanting to succeed at work, but also do the right thing and be be by his wife, which he ultimately does. You know, um, it's it's uh, it's it's a movie that again, there's nothing else. Like nominally, you could say, "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids," right? But it's not the same. It's really not. Like it doesn't carry any of the same message or any of the same. I don't even know how I would explain. Uh, it's just it's very different, you know. Well, and again, it's it's a family film because too often nowadays, or even throughout, a lot of family films are either rarely what it is. It's like it's kids. It's a kids films. film. Yeah, it's a kids yes. film with some references, so the adults don't get too bored. This is a film that is one of those rare all-ages films where you can appreciate this from, you know, age 8 to age 80. Right. But not after or before that, for sure. No. Seven-year-olds, yeah. forget it. Forget it. By the time you're 81, no. You, you're no. With it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And those are the Texas Chainsaw Massacre years. Like, yeah, that's... yeah. The... Uh, as we said, you know, this two recently passed away actors, Charles Grodin, yep. who uh, his probably not his strongest movie. I mean, he's good in this, but it's not his strongest movie, obviously. No, obviously, like I, I, if I'm going to recommend a Charles Grodin movie, it's going to be Midnight Run. Oh, not Muppet Stick Manhattan? No, because he was in The Great Muppet Caper. Great Muppet Caper. I'm sorry. You're right. Not Great Muppet Caper? Where he betrays Miss Piggy. Yeah. I'll never forgive him. Never. Right. Never. All right. All right. No, no. Midnight Run is definitely <laughs> of course. his, yeah. his, his uh, yeah. 
But you know what my favorite Charles Grodin role is? It's his cameo in So I Married an Axe Murderer. Oh, the wow. Mike Myers movie. Okay. He's got a he's got a tiny bit part in that movie where you he's got his where, you know, obviously Mike Myers is in the situation where he believes he may have married an axe murderer. And towards the end of the movie, he's now in danger. And his best friend, who was the cop, who was always complaining he never got to do action movie cop things, mm-hmm. knows he's in trouble and he's trying to rush to his aid. So he runs out onto the street to commandeer a vehicle. And he stops the car. He says, I'm commandeering a vehicle. And the guy driving the car is Charles Grodin. And with just a few seconds of screen time, he steals the whole movie with like, nah, nah, I'm not going to let you come near my car. <laughs> He's like, but, but it's a police emergency. Yeah, but there's no legal precedence for you to be able to commandeer my, my vehicle. It's just, a, it, it, he's so deadpan. And so he, he makes the whole, it's the part I remember more about that movie than just about anything else. Right on. That's a fun movie too. Or at least as I remember it. Ned Beatty, I don't even think I can, you know. I mean, first of all, Ned Beatty was in the greatest, one of the greatest superhero movies ever made, Superman, where he played the Otis, Otis. the bumbling. <laughs> Otisburg? Otisburg. <laughs> That's my favorite scene. Otisburg. It's just a small little play. Otisburg. Otisburg. But he was also in one of the worst superhero movies ever made. Deliverance. Yeah. Well, that's not a superhero movie. I mean, Burt Reynolds, man. Yeah, he's not very superheroic in that. But he is a superhero. Or was. Rest in peace. Go ahead. Uh, He was in the 1990 Captain America, which is just... Reunited with Ronnie Cox is in that movie, too. He was in uh, Deliverance. Two of them. And uh, Homicide Life on the Streets, which to me is the ultimate cop TV show. I I still don't think. That was an excellent show. Um, A lot of people will say The Wire. I disagree. I think Homicide Life on the Streets is better than The Wire. Same, Same guy either way, right? Same, yeah, same guy, same basis for Simon, the, uh, si- something Simon. Um, well, they're both based on uh, life on the street, right? But they're both they're both uh, written, uh, uh, um, uh, right? The, the Baltimore same, reporter, yeah, yeah, or, or same whatever, yeah. same creator behind, yeah. Um, you know, I can't say enough about Ned Beatty. He, he was great as a comic actor. He was great as a dramatic actor. And in, in, in Deliverance, Ned Beatty had the hardest part. He had the hardest part, yes. We can't talk about this movie. This was Joel Schumacher's directorial debut. Yes. Now, over, especially since he gets a heat, well, he's passed away as well. Sure. Yep. But he has gotten a ton of flack. It almost ruined his career was, of course, the abysmal Batman and Robin talking about bad superhero movies. Sure. And he took a way too much flack from, yes, the movie is bad. Yes, a lot of it may be his fault. Right. But you can't discount all the other stuff this man has done. Oh, no. Like The Lost Boys. Yes. Falling Down. Yes. Fun movie. But, uh, you know, polarizing for sure. 
Yes, but I mean, you know, he this this was again like, and as we talked when we covered how Peter Yates had a very varied film career, right? Of what he directed, obviously, same could be said about Joel Schumacher. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, no, no question. Rather, um, Tigerland, um, yeah, like it's 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 all over. Um, Phone Booth was a fun movie. Phone Booth was, yeah, that's another good movie. He's he's. And like he did, this was his directorial debut. He followed up with DC Cab. Then he did yeah. St. Elmo's Fire, which he uh, wrote <laughs> and directed. And yeah, I mean, honestly, he should get more flack for St. Elmo's Fire than he should for Batman and Robin. Personally, uh, yeah, just my yeah. little, yep, own little, but but um, you know this. Who's uh, had an you know an an excellent excellent uh, career? So he's I I don't cringe when I see Joel Schumacher's name. I'm like, all right, this this could be a really cool movie. Um, oh, the, the client Flatliners. There's another two yep. that that he he did. I mean, uh, I always for me, Joel Schumacher will always be synonymous with Lost Boys, probably more than anything else. But like, I have rarely gone wrong with watching one of his movies. And and by the way, only one of those two Batman movies was really bad. Like Batman Forever with Val Kilmer was pretty good, and um, uh, Jim Carrey as the Riddler, like that was a decent movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of bridges the gap between you know where it went from with Batman Returns to. Uh, Batman and Robin, but um, I don't know. I think you know movies like this, and as we said, The Lost Boys and Falling Down, definitely you know raises career into much more into the black than I would mm-hmm. say Saint Elmo's Fire or Batman and Robin could sink it into the red. Completely, completely agree. I mean, and then there's like again, you couldn't think. You know, we we may not be able to come up with something that compares to. Incredible Shrinking Woman to watch, but right there, Lost Boys, Falling Down, The Client, great Joel Schumacher movies. You can you can see uh, 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 Midnight Run with Charles Grodin. There's, there's another there's another good one. A movie we will eventually be doing with Lily Tomlin from uh, Nine to Five with Lily yes. Tomlin, Jane Fonda, and. Um, Dolly Parton Coleman. and the great Dabney Coleman. The Dabney Coleman. Well, yeah, yeah, the great Dabney Coleman. You know, these these are all you know. While incredible shrinking woman may be forgotten, and I always hate to say, it's one of those pet peeves I have when when I'm going through you know going around the internet looking at, and you always see these lists. Oh, top ten movies you've never seen. Right. You don't know what I've seen. Right. Ten forgot movies. Well, I didn't forget this movie. I got a copy of it up on my shelf. I watch it all the time. Right. So I'm hesitant to call it a forgotten movie because obviously, like we just said, Shout Factory has it on Blu-ray. It's one of their Shout Selects. Um, yeah, but I mean, this movie went from 1981 to 2017 with one VHS release and one like kind of half-assed DVD release. I'd say that's practically forgotten, which is strange given that Lily Tomlin is certainly far from forgotten. 
you know, again, it may just be because of this is a like we said, and Joel Schumacher. <laughs> yeah, it's it's strange. It's strange that you know Lily Tomlin and Joel Schumacher, and I mean the movie was panned critically. Um, although it seemed like well, Roger Ebert kind of liked it uh, for for much of the reasons that we just talked about, like it's a quirky as hell and fun movie. Um, and yeah, it has some dips, but I think Lily Tomlin carries them just fine. Do you know, for me, while I was watching it, the movie seemed to just fly by. Yeah. I wasn't bored for a single... The only problem I had, I just, I don't know. I just found the kids incredibly obnoxious. And I wanted <laughs> yeah. to reach through the screen and slap them both. But. It's, they, they're like, they only have one volume. They literally yell through the entire movie. Yes. <laughs> they yes. just again, yell through the entire movie. That was, I'm sure that was the role, you know, sure. it's like she's, it's she's supposed fault. to yeah. be, the, you know, and, and, but it also at no point does, oh, the actors are, are, right, but also at no point does, does the mother or anybody really like treat the kids as bratty. It's almost like they're, these are, they're rambunctious kids. They're hyperactive, right? They they're, treat them yeah, exactly yes. that way. Like they're exasperated, but they're not like angry. Well, yeah, angry, I mean, at least any more than they need to be. And they're not, for this the kid, sake of argument bad kids. No, they're, they're like not obnoxious. evil. No, sure. No. They're not like some of the kids we've seen in, in other movies. Well, and speaking of Charles Grodin, they're not Clifford, played by Martin Short. <laughs> um, yeah, I just saw that, too. Uh, Cinema Snob, um, watch that. Watch if you haven't. Um, the real Brad, uh, Brad Jones there, Cinema Snob. He covers Clifford, which I'm kind of with him. Like I'm, I didn't see the movie, so I've only watched what he saw, and I'm just like, you know what? I kind of dig this movie in its own weird way. I'm kind of glad he watched it. I'm glad he covered it. Clifford starring Martin Short as a 10-year-old boy. Yeah. Not made up as a 10-year-old boy. Again, a lot of special effects shots to make him look Perspective, young. Perspective, yeah. It's, again, this... And, and, and they're one of those... They're those outlier movies. You know, you hear the word term cult classic thrown around a lot. But it's there's, there's these quirky movies that are just out there, waiting for some, you to find them, waiting for you to see them, and they just don't fit into any real cookie cutter category. I mean, you know, Incredible Shrinking Woman. It's a comedy. It's a slapstick comedy. But it's it's also fantasy. It's yeah, real. It's, it's yeah. And it's it's just again, it's just a, a whole ton of fun. Sure. Now, um, uh, as we are, we already gave out our Whip Pistol Awards, and we also discussed that, you know, we really, and I, I struggled a bit, too, to try to think of, you know, even other comedies we saw at the time that we could kind of um, compare to this movie, and I'm just at a loss. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, I mean, I've, I got nothing to compare to like the camp or, or any, you know, like I said, this movie is just, it's a trip. And um, for better or for worse, depending on, you know, how you feel after you see it, there's just nothing quite like it. If you guys, if anyone listening to this uh, knows of a recommendation, you know, hey, fire it off. Um, and, I, and I don't mean just in terms of like, well, there's the Incredible Shrinking Man, right, which you wanted to talk about a bit, or just movies about being shrunk like Fantastic Voyage or something. I'm just like, to me, this movie is just so very unique. Um, I don't really have a very good comparison to it, except to say that I, I, I do recommend seeing it. Um, I don't, yeah, again, I don't know if you want to try to, you know, pull out all stops to like seek it out, but if you, if you come across it, absolutely watch it. I think you'll enjoy it. And then there's, you know, I, I, again, I don't know why, 
but also I just kind of remember in the eighties when, when in usually on a Sunday afternoon, there'd be like a, a marathon of Don Knotts movies. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm just thinking that if they had turned incredible shrinking man into a comedy, they probably would have had it starred Don Knotts. I, I don't, I don't know. It does feel like it would have been a Don Knotts movie or at least Tim Conway. But uh, part of it, for again, uh, the incredible Mr. Olympus or Mr. Limpet, where he turns into a fish. Right. Um, I don't know if, you know, I, I kind of think about maybe if this movie had been made earlier, they would have had it been, um, had it been like an animated feature. You know, oh, yeah, because the effects, yeah. Because you think about it, how many of those movies do we, did we see as kids, and, and uh, um, other than Mr. Limpet and the um, Phantom Toll Booth, whereas you have these movies that are framed by live action sequences right. that then um, the bulk of the movie is an animated sequence. Because I, I also remember this movie we used to see as kids where it was these two kids. One of them was a chimney sweep and the other was a girl that lived in this huge mansion and then they both jump into a river and have an underwater adventure in the river. I have no idea what you are talking about. Is this another one of those um, Dance of the Dwarfs movies where only I seem to be able to remember? I guess so, yeah. Or that one with the... Um... Although I did remember it when you showed it to me. The uh... Oh, what was, I, I, what was that animated one with the... Um... Uh, what's it called? Like that creepy monster? Oh, the um, you know, Dot and the Kangaroo. Yeah, it's Dot and the Kangaroo. There you go. With the uh, the 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 sequence with the bunyips going to get you. The bunyip, that, yeah. Like yeah. you remembered that somehow, and of course, when I saw it, I was just like, oh yeah. Like much like this movie, I I think you and I, I don't think we've seen it since like the mid '80s or something. And um, uh, but when I saw it, like oh, certain sequences came right back to me, right down whether it be the cheese teas, whether it be the uh, garbage disposal, uh, whether it be Sydney um, or the jingle. Like it was, it was, it was weird how much of this movie just fled back at me, flooded back at me like in a stream uh, as I was watching it. I guarantee you, it's been it, while it couldn't have been a complete forty years because the movie's only forty years old now. It's got to have been between thirty-five to 38 years yeah. since we've laid eyes on this movie. Yeah, you know, definitely. Like 85 at the most. 84, 85 at the most. But it's a blast. I had a, a tremendous I really enjoyed time it. watching it. Yeah. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it. Very unique movie. Very charming movie, though. As far as connecting this movie to... Well, before again, before we do, do the uh, Magnificent Seven Degrees, do you have anything else you want to say, recommend? Oh, no, I wanted to talk about Richard Matheson. Right. Okay, so this movie is based on, well, and it even says in the credits, suggested by The Shrinking Man by Richard Matheson, Mm -hmm. which was adapted into the movie The Incredible Shrinking Man. Mm -hmm. Richard Matheson is probably my favorite all-time writer. He wrote for The Twilight Zone, where he wrote some of the creepiest episodes ever for The Twilight Zone. He wrote the acclaimed um, sci-fi horror novel, The Last Man on Earth. Yep. Um, no, I'm sorry. 
the the, no, the novel's called I Am Legend. I Am Legend, right. It was adapted into The Last Man on Earth starring Vincent Price, which is probably the closest adaptation to the novel that we've ever seen on the seen on the screen. Mm-hmm. It was also adapted into Omega Man starring Charlton Heston and the I Am Legend starring uh, Will Smith, neither of which are even close. Right. Um, and by way of... Both fun movies, but neither of which are even close. Yes, and by way of Last Man on Earth, that inspired Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. Richard Matheson also wrote The Legend of Hell House, which is one of the best haunted house movies ever done. No doubt. Which I can't believe I didn't think of when we were talking about Amityville Horror a few weeks ago. Right, yeah. Yeah. That's an yeah. excellent novel, which also has an excellent movie based on it. Yep. He wrote a World War II novel called The Beardless Warriors, which reflects his experiences during World War II, which is an incredible war novel. Okay. I cannot say enough good things about the late, great Richard Matheson and his writing. Uh, I, I think it's called Mark on the Sun, where he wrote a Western about a pterodactyl terrorizing a section of the West. Oh, neat. Just a, a, a Duel, Steven Spielberg's first feature, written by Richard Matheson. Trilogy of Terror, one of the scariest TV movie horror with with the uh, Karen Black versus the Zuni, Zuni fetish, fetish doll, doll yep. chasing around. Well, all this fantastic, fantastic stuff. If you see something that says by Richard Matheson on it, buy it, read it. You will not regret it. Right on. Um, there's even a, anthology, a collection of stories written by various authors. One of the stories was written by Stephen King and Joe Hill, which is a tribute to Duel called Throttle, which is a motorcycle game versus a Mack, uh, truck running them down. It's called He is Legend, and they all wrote sequels slash uh, remakes of some of Matheson's greatest works. Love Richard Matheson. I, I can't think of anything I read from him that I didn't like. And I can think of plenty of things that I read by him or watched that were adapted from his work that didn't creep me the hell out. So, while this is a slapstick comedy based, again, suggested by his work, it's just it's just fantastic. That's my recommendation, is seek out works done by Richard Matheson. Sure, absolutely. That's a okay. yeah, that's a great recommendation. Right All right. So with that out of the way, now we can get to the Magnificent Seven Degrees, mm-hmm. and this one I struggled with, so I had to kind of go back on stuff I've already done. Okay. So I'm going to go with Ned Beatty. Right. He was in Deliverance right. with yep. uh, Burt Reynolds, and Burt Reynolds was in Fuzz with Yul Brenner, who was in. The Magnificent Seven. Very good. Very good. I didn't even try. Um, I had, yeah, I had too much trouble trying because, again, I try to do it without cheating. And um, I, I figured it would probably be through either Ned Beatty or perhaps whoever it was who played the, um, like, the mad scientist kind of doctor. Um, 
uh, but um, I, I couldn't I couldn't make the connection. But I I, I kind of figured it might it was, it was probably gonna be Ned Beatty. Yeah, I wanted to use uh, Charles Grodin or Lily Tomlin, but I couldn't think of uh, anything. Hmm. Um, Unless you can go through Dabney Coleman or Dolly Parton or Jane Fonda, which actually you well, probably can if you think about it hard enough. I did. But you have Dab- another shot. You have another shot at that. I did the Dabney Coleman when we went through. Um, oh right. Uh, Cloak and Dagger. Right, and that's an easy one. Yeah. So, uh, anything else you got? No, um, no, not really. This um, this was a treat. This was a this was a fun one to do. Um, thank you to our sister for uh, reminding us of it. Uh, it was always kind of on our list, but um, she kind of bumped it up for us, and um, I'm, I'm glad we did because it was a lot of fun. Yes, and I also want to just it just occurred to me too is the um, what was it the Kleinman Institute was the research development place they sent her to to try to diagnose her. Right, and it had this motto outside the front that said. Um, Science is truth, truth found out. Yes, yep. I thought that was a great slogan. It's a little inaccurate because technically, science is a way of discovering the truth, not necessarily the truth itself. But I thought I just kind of liked that, right? Um, I also kind of liked uh, just going back to that scene real quick and way back to the actual movie is the uh, when they're when they're leaving and they're they're just bringing in some like box I guess with a woman or something inside that's trying to get out and they're all just kind of yes. ignoring it. What was this, what was this, that about? I mean, you you look later; it was probably one of those monkeys. But yeah, he's just they've discovered that you know she's shrinking, but they don't know of a cure, and they're carrying. He's kind of holding her. As they're walking out, and yeah, there's this screaming. It was probably a monkey inside that. Box. Don't know. I don't know. I thought it was a woman. It certainly sounded like a woman. Uh, something was... trying to struggle to get out of a cardboard box that, like, some guys in hazmat suits are walking in. <laughs> yes, it doesn't seem like something they should <laughs> like, be bringing in through the front door. No, like, what was that movie? I want to see that movie too. <laughs> you know, maybe it was Sydney. Maybe it was Sydney they brought in with the. Uh... You know, and they grew him. From yeah, that. But yeah, that was a uh, that was a rather surreal slapstick that doesn't kind of even fit in with a lot of the other stuff. Well, also, and and as much as I liked Rob, your your Whitbiss Award winner, the uh, you know the the custodian slash trainer slash uh, whatever for Sydney, he was like totally on board with whatever they were going to do when he thought she was just a clone, which I don't know, <laughs> that's kind of well, dark. He wasn't on, once he found out they were going to shrink the world, he wasn't on well, board too, anymore. Yeah. But he was, you know, he was convinced that he was working for a place that was trying to do better for mankind. Right. But still, him to just be like, ah, you're just a clone. And that just seems a little, I don't know, ethically questionable. I mean, that's really the ethics of cloning is, you know, a clone a human being or is a clone a product created by human beings? Right. I try to avoid the subjects of clones ever since I got caught up in that terrible clonus horror. Oh, jeez. Yeah, parts. Just parts everywhere. Um, plus, you, well, you read a lot of comics, so there's there's constant clones upon clones. I got clones for days. Uh, the clone of the clone of the <laughs> other clone. and uh, yeah. I mean, what, what, what percentage would you say of... Well, who's, who do you figure is worse, clone-wise? Uh, is it Marvel or DC? Oh, definitely Marvel. I was going to say, I have a feeling it's Marvel, right? And it, what what percentage of Marvel would you say is a clone? 
Well, and again, this is one of those things where they're always ambiguous about, no, the real one died and now there's a clone. And, Fair enough. And like, no, no, it turns out that the the clone died and the real one's still alive. But, I mean, anybody who's ever read Spider-Man knows about the, the whole clone saga. Oh, yeah. And for a while that we were told that Peter Parker that we had read for the last 15 to 20 years was really a clone and the real Peter Parker had been missing and came back. And then they reversed it again and said, no, no, no. The one that came back that we thought was the real Peter Parker was in fact the clone. Oh boy. And then there's the, the Gwen Stacy clone. And yeah, the clone saga is one of those things that people, it's one of those, well, now I would say it's the Star Wars sequel trilogy that people try to gasp and, and shake their heads at and try to forget. Right. But, yeah, that's... And then currently in the comic books, as far as we know, the current Black Widow is a clone of the original Black Widow. Um, and maybe the uh, the fifth or sixth in a series of clones of the original oh, Black wow. Widow. Now... What would you say Marvel has abused more? Uh, I would gather it's probably clones, because you could do that at any decade in Marvel history. Uh, Scrolls or the Cosmic Cube? Well, now I would probably say the Cosmic Cube, since it's gotten such exposure through the movies. So they're back to the Cosmic Cube. Yeah, I mean, the Cosmic Cube is is uh, is a very common MacGuffin to explain. Just about why. anything. Yeah. yeah. That and the Infinity Stones and right, multiverse and uh, I mean it just it can get really really overcomplicated and it's just again it's a way to write themselves out of corners they've written themselves into yeah or or more famously kill off a character but not really kill off or again explain how because you know oh we probably should have thought ahead and. You know, we really need this character. It was a popular character, and how do we bring him back? And this is how we do it. Fair enough. All right, man. Well, um, that's it. I mean, boy, did we tend to ramble and go off subject in this one, but sure. Once again, we thank you all for listening and hope to have you back for the next time. Thank you, everyone. All right. Good, be good to each other, people. Yes, please. <laughs>